Well, good, uh, good to see you today. We want to begin in chapter 6, verse 12. This section is, um, through the end of the chapter, is one of the most, um, I think, relevant uh, for our world. Let's review a little bit. Um, I have a couple of handouts I want to give you as it relates to this. But Paul is uh, writing to this little church, probably a cluster of house churches in um, in Corinth, and I really uh, appreciate this book of Corinthians, First Corinthians, mainly, uh, for among many other reasons, because it is so appropriate for where many of us are in the kind of uh, culture, in the kind of world, uh, kind of civilization in which we live. Um, this was a Greco-Roman world uh, that its uh, uh, values, its morals, and its ethical standards were. Uh, completely opposite those of, 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 of God. And Paul has planted this little church here, and he had uh, ongoing and significant concerns about this church. Uh, he wrote, as far as we know, four letters to the church, visited it three times. Perhaps of all the ones in the New Testament uh, that he was most concerned about, this is the one. And I think... Uh, uh, the more you study it and the more I study it, the more we see um, uh, perhaps why. In this particular section, verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6, we, um, we see one of the best examples of their dualistic worldview. Now, those last two words must cause you to remember some things that we talked about earlier. Do you remember what that means? A dualistic worldview. They just kind of had one foot in the kind of the kingdom of God, one foot in the worldly kingdom in terms of how they worked. I mean, they had that's that is the rules that Paul laid out, but then they still followed kind of their own rules or their own rules. That is certainly true, um, and that gets a little bit at what James would call being double-minded. But dualism is something a little different than that. It's actually, dualism is perhaps one of the reasons why they lived the way you just described. Is this, they felt that the kingdom had come and they were... No, that's realized eschatology. (laughs) Good try, though. Remember, now, remember, uh, and I know this is, this is what's... um, it's always it's always difficult for you guys because you only see me for an hour a week, and then you know when you're not here for a week or two, or you missed the section where I talked about that. My expectation is you remember it, when in reality you may not, and that's fine. Um, dualism was very much a part of the way the Greeks and the Romans looked at things, and it basically that you distill it all down: the material world is evil, the spirit world is good. Therefore. The body's evil, and the spirit's good. Therefore, the body doesn't really matter what I do with my body. Now, stop for a minute. Let those words sink into your heart and soul and mind. <laughs> Are they getting there? Are they starting to uh, hopefully sink deep into your heart, soul, and mind? It is... Um, it is really quite important that you remember that because so much of the Corinthian problem relates to this, which uh, I can't remember if I said this or not, but it's probably one of the major reasons why Paul, in chapter 15, gave us the longest and most detailed defense of the literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Because the idea for them was, why would God resurrect a body? That's evil. I mean, that, that, why would he do that? And of course, that is wrong. It's an an absolute uh, uh, shameful thing to believe when God creates and declares what he creates good. The problem is not our body, per se. The problem is our sin. So with, with that, is everybody with me on that? Is, are mm-hmm. there any questions? Because I, I don't, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I want you to do everything that's possibly within your Abilities and capacities to not forget that, <laughs> because it is so uh, so central to this, and it's still very much not perhaps that um, 
boldly stated, but still kind of around. I mean, did you ever hear anybody say, well, all God's interested in is saving your soul? That is not a correct way to say things. Because if there's a bodily resurrection and our spirit will be joined with our body at the resurrection, our body's going to live forever. Albeit in a, in a resurrected, glorified way. So, with that said, let me introduce a second important point as we study this. The Corinthians apparently, or at least some of them, were saying, you know, God's going to destroy the body, and um, if he's going to destroy the body, then it doesn't really much matter what I do with it. And since I'm kind of really free now in Christ and all things are permissible to me, sexually it doesn't really matter what I do. And they're making an analogy between food and sex. And so as we get started, I'm going to want, and it depends on the translations you, each one of you guys has, because some translations, more recent ones, put quotation marks where they should be. Some translations don't have any quotation marks. And I'll explain what I mean as we start looking at verse 12. 12 begins, all things are lawful for me. That should have quotation marks around it. I think NIV placed them there, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, ESV has, NASB does not have them there. Neither does King James, as I recall. This, I'll, I'll call it this, this is a, a Corinthian slogan. This is something they said. And so Paul is answering this slogan. All things are lawful for me. That is a statement of their freedom. That is a statement of their liberty. And in a sense, that's not incorrect. But Paul qualifies that. But not all things are profitable. And he quotes them again. All things are lawful for me. Again, that should have quotation marks around it. And then he qualifies it a second time. But I will not be mastered by anything. Okay, you have two key caveats. You know what I mean by caveat? Two key buts. I, I, Paul would, in effect, if he were sitting in a, around the table with them and drink a cup of coffee or something, and they would say, Paul, you told us all things are lawful. Yes, but. Again, Paul, you said all things are lawful. Yes, but. So, since we have the board here, in Paul's response to their slogan, in his first response, what's the key word? Profitable. Good. It's profitable. In when he quotes that slogan again a second time, what's the key word that's part of his response? Mastered. I think I heard somebody say it. Mastered. Mastered, Mastered yeah. <clears throat> And I mean, in each case, there's a negative in front of it. Not profitable, not master. Okay, let's talk about these. Um, so you could, in effect, conclude that Paul agrees with the statement, because after all, he did teach that. We'll see that in chapter 8. But he always qualified it. Now, let me, um, let me approach this from a different angle, because some of you have that deer in the headlight look and that means something's not going right so I want to make sure you're with me if you just take the statement all things are profit, all things are lawful for me that could produce 
the idea or the attitude or even the lifestyle of libertinism. Now, that's a big word. Do you know what I mean by that? You can do whatever you want. I'm a libertine. I'm totally... In other words, all things are lawful for me means absolute, unvarnished, no-boundary type autonomy. I just strung a whole bunch of things together. But meaning I can do whatever I want. Now, you and I know both, and Paul knew that, and I suspect in their heart they knew that too. That is not what he meant. You are free in Christ. Christian liberty is an important concept in the Christian life. But Christian liberty does not mean libertinism. Libertinism comes from the word liberty, which means I can do whatever I want. Liberty has no bounds. That is not what he's saying. So he cautions them and qualifies his statement and says, yeah, but not all things are profitable. What does that mean? What would be another word for profitable? Good for me. Beneficial. Beneficial. Good for me. Valuable. Valuable. Okay. <laughs> we got it. We got it. I'm not going to write it more. Good for me. Just all those ellipses points to me. That's good. So it's accurate that all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial or valuable or good for me. Second qualifier, but I will not be mastered by anything. What does he mean by that? Be a slave. I'm sorry? Be a slave. All right. In other words, um, controlled. Controlled. Yeah. Slave. Controlled. Subjected. What was that? Subjected. Subjected. Good. Okay. That's good. We got it. That's good. Now, this one I think you can understand rather easily. This one. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be enslaved or controlled or subjected to all things. Can good things lead to that? I mean, are you guys with me? It's like you all have that deer in the headlight look, so I'm not sure. Are you guys with me? When he says that, in other words, even good things, even good things can master you. You know, Oh, what would be an example? Um, like work? Yeah, work is a good thing. And I have a lot of freedom, but it can turn into workaholism, which means it's now mastering and slave, and I'm subjected to it, and it's controlling me, and I'm so obsessed with it, I can't do anything but work. Now, that's taking it to an extreme, but that's the idea. So, so in other words, all things are lawful to me, but I'm wise if I exercise self-control. All things are lawful to me, but I'm wise if I see the benefit. Now remember, all things are lawful for me, even if you understand that from a true biblical point of view, does not mean I have the freedom to sin. That is not what it means. But Paul is qualifying this and saying, even as you exercise your liberty, just as a principle, you have to be really wise. And the checks of wisdom on Christian liberty are, how does this benefit me? And two, I want to make sure that this good thing that I'm choosing does not actually end up mastering and controlling and manipulating and in, in, in effect enslaving me. All right, now, verse 12 is a wonderful summary of liberty in Christ. It's a very helpful summary. And I'll say this, I think, for the third time. When you think of Christian liberty, our Christian freedom, it never means that we have the freedom to sin. That's not what it means. It means, okay, how do I exercise my freedom in Christ in these non-moral, non-sinful areas of life? Nothing more illustrates that than food. Food is the kind of good thing from God where you have to ask profitability, beneficial Mastery and slave, because 
those issues are very real. We have freedom. And so, verse 13, verse 13 and verse 14 bring up the first illustration from the Corinthian experience where they were turning their liberty into license. And they were taking that principle of Christian liberty and extending it way beyond anything the Apostle Paul had taught. Now, in my view, and again, it's going to depend on your translation that you're using, whether there are quotation marks, but verse 13, food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both. There should be a quotation marks around that statement. Again, I believe the NIV has that. Mm -hmm. This is a slogan. This is what the Corinthians were apparently saying and following and adhering to. Food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. So what's the inference to draw from that? My freedom means I can eat whatever I want. Which is true. I mean, there are, you know, with, with Jesus' fulfilling of the law, all the Levitical restrictions about kosher are gone. We may choose to follow them, but it's not part of our obligation anymore. I'm free from that. And what the Corinthians were doing is they were, I'm going to send these around. Let me have any extras that are left over. Because Paul responds to this, this analogy that they are Drawing because they are connecting apparently this thought about food with morality, immorality, with with sex. Food is for the body. The stomach is for food. God destroys the stomach. God destroys food. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. Paul's response is. Yet the body is not for immorality. It's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. That is, God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. Now take a look at this chart. In this chapter, there are two, and I'm going to give you a second one if, if we don't run out of time at the very end of this chapter. But Paul is setting up something here. It's a parallelism that is very, very, very central to understanding what's going on at Corinth. Now, if you, the right-hand side, I just summarized it. I'm not going to read it again. Excuse me, left-hand side, I just summarized Now, the right-hand side. Paul's response is, but the body is for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. God raised the Lord. God will raise us. Let's put it another way. The Corinthians are saying... It doesn't matter what I eat. Because God's going to destroy my body and going to destroy the stomach. He's going to destroy the food. It doesn't matter. Therefore, it really doesn't matter what I do with my sexual organs. God's going to destroy that. God's going to destroy my body. It doesn't matter. You see what they're doing? Now, the answer to that is yes. If, if yes. you can't answer yes, 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 then that means you don't get it. Yes. So here, let, let's... Let's do it a third way. They're taking this idea, this concept, this principle, this important distinctive of Christianity, of liberty in Christ. They're prostituting it into an analogy. As it doesn't matter what I'm going to eat because God is going to destroy the body and the stomach and food, Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do in the sexual area of life because God's going to destroy the body and my sexual organs and everything. Because remember, Paul, you taught us there are no marriages in heaven. So presumably there's no sexual intercourse in heaven. So presumably there's no procreation. So, Paul, it doesn't matter what I do, right? Now I'm getting animated. But Paul comes back and teaches them some very profound theology. The body 
is so important to the Lord that he's going to resurrect it. And he backs it up from there. And in the new creation, which is what you are, the new order has begun. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And that is a very curious way of saying it. In the chart I gave you, I basically quoted those. What does he mean by that? That the Lord, excuse me, that the body's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Well, now the Lord, the body is for the Lord is not difficult to understand because he's going to teach that at the end of this chapter. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies have been bought with a price, the shed blood of Christ. So it matters what we do with our body. And in addition, not only is the body for the Lord because he purchased it, he bought it, it belongs to him, but the Lord is for the body, meaning he did everything conceivable to earn that possession. He died for you. His death was a substitutionary death for you. The Lord is for the body. And to prove that the body remains so important for him, and he's not going to destroy it and annihilate it, he's going to raise it from the dead. So what's the conclusion we're to draw from that? It matters what you do with your body. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean I can do whatever I want with my body. And what they were saying is they were making the analogy between food and sex. As God's going to destroy my stomach and food, and it doesn't matter. He's going to destroy my body and sex, and it doesn't matter, so I can do whatever I want. That's dualism. The body is evil. God's going to destroy it. The spirit is good. That's what's eternal. See, you're get, we're starting to get to the fundamental problem of the Corinthians. They did not understand the physical, literal, bodily resurrection and its implications for their life. They didn't understand that. And remember, as I told you, that, that, was, that was the most profoundly difficult issue in the first century and a half of the church because the Greco-Roman world was a dualistic world. That's, how, that's what Plato taught. That's what Aristotle taught. And to overcome that, was that's why Gnosticism, which you may or may not have ever heard of, Gnosticism was so popular. And in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, it almost overran the church for a period of time. And so this is what he's dealing with here. He, he is, and I should maybe put it this way, the gospel is overturning an entire worldview. And that is very, very difficult. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody, it's like a Hindu coming to Christ. That is very difficult for them. It's not that they don't understand the gospel and they apply it to the... But it's everything else that accompanied their worldview of being a Hindu. It just has to slowly be unpacked and repackaged with the truth of, of Christ and, and all that's in the scriptures. The same with a Muslim who comes to faith. It, to some extent, it's the same for a Jewish person. For a Jewish person to cross that divide and say, Jesus is my Messiah, means they have to turn their back on 4,500 years of teaching. And that mom was wrong, and dad was wrong, and grandpa was wrong, and grandma was wrong, and great-grandma. You see what I'm saying? Because that's very important to them. And so I'm trying to really make this dramatic, but I'm also trying to, to make it why, why this is so important. Paul is challenging everything they believed, which is what the gospel does. Were the Corinthians just trashing their bodies or something? Is that why he brings this up? Or again, help us understand what was going on at the time. Well, uh, again, I think, uh, I don't know what you mean by trashing their bodies, but in other words, okay, well, they were were taking, if you go to verse 12, all things are lawful for me. And I I can't remember if you had walked in here yet or not, Dave. But I, I ask you, make sure you have quotation marks around that. That was one of the slogans they were using. Paul doesn't disagree with that. They were translating it into a lifestyle, all things are lawful, that means I can do whatever I want. And Paul's correcting it. No, 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 you don't get it. That's not right. 
you have freedom in Christ. You don't have the freedom to sin, but your freedom in Christ that means that not everything you choose to do is profitable. The benefit you have to make that decision. You have to be wise. And not all things I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Because even good things can enslave you. And so then, as they're sitting around a coffee table drinking coffee, they said, well, Paul, here's another one. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach's for food, but God will do it with both of them. Well, in one sense, that's true, maybe. Certainly it's true in, in, in one level that, you know, the resurrected body is going to be a lot different than our body today. And then they were taking another step. As I have freedom in what I choose to eat, I have freedom in what I choose to, with my, to do with my body in terms of sex. So I can do anything I want because God's going to destroy the body. Jen, can you explain something? Uh, these are Christians, right? Hmm? And so the Holy Spirit resides in them. Now, is this part of the progressive knowledge that all of us as Christians need as we grow in the knowledge of the Lord? Because if the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit within them say this is wrong and then Paul is saying to them as a teacher this is wrong and then he builds the argument for it. <clears throat> how does that work today for us who are moving from ground zero to ultimate conformity which is well really again I think you used you really in one sense try to have answered your own, your own question, but it is this is part of that process of being transformed into the image of Christ. It is that process, and I mentioned this I think last week, of becoming what you are. Who am I in Christ? I'm righteous. Romans six, one through fourteen. The new order has dawned. I'm a part of that. God's made a enormous number of promises to me. I believe he's going to keep it. But the reality is I'm still struggling with living in a fallen, broken world. I'm still struggling with the sin that is in my life. And I'm also struggling with the way in which I either looked at things or the way in which I was taught to look at things. My worldview. And when you become a Christian... When you put your faith in Christ and you believe that his death, burial, and resurrection was for you and you apply that to your life by faith, that is the beginning of that new life. But that new life is first positional. This is who I am in Christ. And then I begin that process of transformation where what I am in Christ now is beginning to be reflected in everything I do, every minute of every day. And that's, a, that's why I use the word process. And that takes... It really takes the rest of our lives. And so, Fred, what we're seeing here, because this is a young church. These are people who came to faith in Christ about two and a half, three years ago from when he wrote this letter. So these are young. Even the leaders are young. And so they're struggling with, as everybody that comes to faith struggles with, how does all this stuff apply to my life? And because of their worldview, this dualistic view of things, that's an enormous thing for them to get over. Everybody in my family, in my extended family, going back generation after generation after generation, believed in a dualistic view of the world that the body doesn't matter, the body's evil, it's going to be destroyed, it's horrible, the only thing that's good is spirit, we want to be released from our evil bodies, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. That is no longer true in Christianity. Because Jesus took on a real body, and Jesus' death was in a body, and Jesus is so important in what he's doing as he renews this world, as he's going to bring you back in a new resurrected body, as he got a new resurrected body. And your destiny is that. And so that means, therefore, that it matters how you live now. He was teaching that the body is bad, and they have to get liberated out of that. He, that's what they believed. That is not what he's teaching. Out of what kind of system of belief? Like, it's not Judaism that says that, is it? 
It, it's not what, Mark? What, what is it that says that the body is bad? Is it Judaism? Uh, Greek, Greco-Roman dualism. The Greco-Roman worldview. Very dualistic. Body is evil, spirit is good. That's so they're what, waiting for themselves to die so they can be liberated out of their bodies? Or? That's essentially right. Mm -hmm. That, uh, and I'm not sure they would even use this word, but we'll use it nonetheless. Salvation in the Greco-Roman world was to be freed from the body. That's what Plato taught. That was, a, that was a central part of Plato's teaching. Plato believed in transmigration of the soul, what we would call reincarnation, and how you live determined what you'll come back as, so to speak. And that's, of course, Hinduism, Buddhism, that kind of stuff holds that too. And so, I mean, you can understand, I, I hope you can, you can understand why when Christianity comes into this world, the Greco-Roman world, it is revolutionary. It's overturning everything they believe. Communion, you know, you're taking the body and blood of Christ. They're celebrating the body, you know, of Christ. I mean, aren't and it, you supposed to emulate yourself? Exactly. I mean, that, to me, it just seems like a simple concept. It, it is, yeah. for you and me. Mm -hmm. But remember the world into which the gospel came. In the Greco and it was hard for them. And that's why Paul, he just he keeps coming back to this. And I mean, he just, you're, you're going to see in the next chapter, their dualistic view of things affected how they looked at marriage. And chapter 7 is a long chapter on marriage, which maybe we'll avoid. <laughs> <laughs> no, Andrew needs it. I'm going to be really literal here in this question, and it may just be a word that I need to say, cremation. He's uh, what? Cremation. Cremation. Where, where would something like that for a believer perhaps fall in this? In I forgot to tell you. I have an early appointment. That's hard in the 21st century because... Uh, um, it's becoming uh, much uh, more widely practiced, and even among evangelical Christians and all of that. I can't, um, I can't point to a teaching section of God's Word where it's clearly forbidding cremation. So I suppose, um, and, and I, I think that's maybe the right way to, to say that, I suppose that cremation, and you all know what this means, don't you? you, you, you they, they, at the mortuary, they, they, they burn the body. And it's then it's reduced to ashes and all that. <clears throat> so I suppose this is an area of our, of our Christian liberty. There's freedom there. Because after all, I mean, and this is very clear in Scripture, that the Lord's going to resurrect everybody. There are three stages to the resurrection at the end of time. And, I mean, everybody, even the unregenerate, the unrighteous at the great white throne, it tells in Revelation 20, will be raised for judgment. So what that means, and it's everybody, that means all of the vast, vast, vast majority of humanity that's ever lived that are now dust. God's going to put it all back together, put all those molecules back together and so on. So I suppose it doesn't matter in that sense because just of the nature of the miracle of the resurrection. However, there are two things that, and this is, so I'm in effect giving you what I've taught, so I'm going to throw out these two things to think about. Whenever burning of the Bible excuse me, whenever burning of the body is referenced in the Bible, and it's only about three or four times, it was always in the context of a pagan ritual. For example, uh, it tells us that Manassas, one of the final kings of, of Judah, he offered two of his children to the, uh, to the god Molech in the Valley of Hinnom, south of uh, Jerusalem. Burned his children, not, not reflected in his positive inscription. Uh, it, it, well, anyway, I won't give you any more of them, but there, all of those examples are always within the context of paganism and are always condemned. Now, it is in the context of paganism that they're being condemned, but there's never anything positive said. And the th second point is, and we're looking at a passage here that, that illustrates this, and we'll see it uh, at the very end of the chapter, 
because the body is important to God and because he is going to resurrect it, it is therefore important to treat the body with honor and dignity and respect. And many have suggested that that is not necessarily uh, treating the body, see Ed, with respect and dignity. Uh, That's one of the reasons why up until very recently, a typical church in, in Europe or in North America, Canada, as a part of the church, you have a, a, a grave, a cemetery. You know, it's either to the side or it's in back, or, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, I don't know, do you know what I mean? If you go to even in Omaha, no. but you go around the in Europe or all over the place, even in lower Manhattan, Trinity Church, which is a very historic church in lower Manhattan, has a cemetery. Because that goes all the way. And Alexander Hamilton's buried there, by the way, in case you're really interested. And others. So, I mean, I'm saying that that's how, that's how the church has historically looked at treating the body with dignity and respect. So that's my answer. I don't think it's a sin to cremate the body. I, I mean, I can't, I can't see that as, as something that's a command in Scripture. But uh, it's just something you have to... You have to decide what are you comfortable with in terms of your conscience. Peggy and I made the decision to, uh, uh, we already bought our burial plots, we have the burial stones, we bought the whole package. One, for one reason, and one reason only, because our son lives in England, where he, he and his wife live there. It's very difficult, if we were to die tomorrow in an accident or something, it would be very difficult for them to make all those arrangements. We just didn't want them to have to worry about it. It was really interesting when Peggy told her mother this. This is what her mother's response was. You mean you're not going to be buried next to me in Strasbourg? <laughs> it was really, it was, for her, it was so important. And it was a shock to her. I mean, you know, she didn't even, when you think about it, Peggy said, Mom, we're not going to ship our bodies halfway across the country. What really matters is where we spend eternity, not where we're in that little box for a period yeah. of time. And she said, we don't want our kids to have to worry about all that expense and effort of shipping our body, mom, would be, well, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that, you know, that generation, uh, it was so important. And, uh, you know, and so um, we shared this with our kids and showed them pictures of the thing and they said, well, we don't want to talk about that yet, you know. So it's, we're caught in this middle conundrum where nobody's happy with our decision. But I'm way down the pipe. But Jim, that, isn't the same issue valid today that you've just been describing with the dualism issue? Because I mean, it, isn't that what we're battling against today? In the world? Oh, I think a, a dualistic way of looking at things is still very, very prevalent. Didn't that really start in kind of the postmodern? Error. Yeah, yeah, it has. Uh, it's accelerated with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. it really has. What, what do you mean by dualistic? That's yeah, the second time you mentioned. That. Okay, now let's let's go over this again. Very reviewed this, by the way. Was <laughs> <laughs> well, this in the beginning? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Now this. <laughs> Don't forget this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But uh, I mean, this really is—it uh, is quite foundational to understanding the Book of Corinthians, both first and second. But actually, understanding the New Testament, especially in in the letters, the, the uh, not to some extent the Gospels, especially the letters of Paul and the Book of Hebrews and all that stuff. All right, dualism as a worldview says. There are two aspects to reality, two aspects to the world, material and immaterial. Well, that's not hard to understand. I understand it. I believe that. You believe that. There's a material part of the world. There's an immaterial part of the world. As far as the human being concerned, that material is the body. And the immaterial is the spirit. Or, it depends on how you look at these words in the New Testament, the soul. Okay? All right, now, so far, that's not difficult. See you, Jim. Thank you. Sorry. But they, dualism assigns a value to these things. 
to these two parts of reality. And this is what they say. This part is evil. This part is good. So a typical Greco-Roman person that to whom Paul was writing, for example, the book of 1 Corinthians, when Paul comes on the scene and, and then pa- Paulus follows him uh, after he goes on to another city to plant a church, he's preaching this stuff, and this is challenging everything they believe. So this isn't true? No, it's not. The body is not inherently evil. The problem with the body isn't the evil of the body. Your skin and bone and blood isn't bu- evil, it's the sin that's in you that's evil. And God has taken care of that by sending Jesus Christ. And to show that the body is so important to God, he's going to resurrect it. Now he's doing that to show that the penalty for sin has been paid. Death is no longer uh, something we should fear. Death is the penalty has been removed. You remember, that's what he's arguing in Romans chapter 6 and 7. That the penalty, the power, and... And the authority of sin in your life has been broken by Christ. You don't need to fear death anymore because death is merely the transition to eternal life. And the resurrection is when your soul and your body are reunited. And so this is what they believe and the gospel challenges us. Because you and I will live forever as a soul. This sounds philosophical, but there's no other way to address it as a soul-body unity. I mean, Fred Scott is not just that body I see writing with his pen. That's not just Fred. There's an immaterial part of Fred. And I don't know how you want to talk about his soul or his spirit, and some people say there's a separation. that I don't even get into that issue, but there's a material part of Fred and there's an immaterial part of Fred. When Fred draws his last breath, his body will go in the ground, his soul will go to be with Jesus. And then when 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 occurs, when Christ comes back in the, the last trumpet and the sound of the archangel and the shout and all that, Fred's body will come from the grave, his soul, which is with Christ, they will rejoin in the air, and forever he will be a soul-body unit called Fred Scott for all eternity. That's the gospel. And that profoundly challenged the Greco-Roman world. Because this is what they believed. And if you go to Acts 17, where Paul is on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the, where all the intellectual philosophers gathered in Athens and discussed things, he even mentions there the Stoics and the Epicureans. And they're tracking with Paul, because he's quoting their philosophers, because he really knew their worldview. And at the very end of his talk, which is recorded in Acts 17, he brings up the resurrection. And if you go back and look at it, you remember what they said? They mocked him. They made fun of him. They tracked him up to that point. But when he brought up the resurrection, challenged this. And they mock him. But in the very last verse, but some believed and even names them. So that's to me, I always like Acts 17 because it helps us to understand how the gospel challenged and eventually overturned the Greco-Roman view of things. That's why the Roman Empire isn't around anymore. But the Church of Jesus Christ is around. So you, you see, Dave, does that answer your question? I mean, that's just this. If you don't, if you, and I keep, and I know it's just repetition and review is how you learn. But if if you come away with anything from today, it's just a reassurance of what this means now the gospel overturned this and why Paul's having such difficulty with the Corinthians because this is how they look at things and it's so hard for them but slowly but surely they get it somebody else yeah, Joel well, I was just for clarification quickly the, I mean when you say the Greco-Roman world I mean that was the bulk of the civilized world at this time the Mediterranean world mm-hmm. so I mean that was everyone believed this way except for this growing Church. Right, right, that's right. So, what happens to the unbeliever? You said the believer is going to unite together, the soul and the body united together with Jesus and forever. What's going to happen to the unbeliever? Revelation 20 tells us, the very end of the chapter, that uh, it's what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. 
it tells us, and the dead, the unregenerate, the unsaved dead, if you will, are resurrected. But they're resurrected for one purpose, judgment. So it means that all of the unregenerate who have died, their bodies will be resurrected, rejoined with their spirits that are currently in Hades, and they will then stand before God Almighty, give an account of how they reject, why they rejected God's grace, and we cast into the lake of fire. That's exactly what Revelation 20 says. So Mark, every human being who has ever lived will be resurrected. You have put your faith in Christ. When Christ returns in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians, your body, whether you're alive now, which will immediately go to be with the Lord, uh, it actually it says the dead in Christ rise first, but that's when you will get your resurrected body. Uh, I will probably precede you in death. So I will probably be in the ground when it happens. That means I will go first. Not because I'm better, it's just that's the way the Bible says it. Dead in Christ, Christ first. And then we, and it says the, the last part of that verse, verse uh, 17, and forever be with the Lord. That's the way we will be for all eternity. The unregenerate, those who have not trusted God, will be resurrected for judgment will spend eternity in torment. So the Bible clearly says that as soon as we die, we're going to be with Jesus as a soul, as a spirit. If we put our faith in Christ. Yes. 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Exactly. They does not say that for the unbeliever. Yeah. The unbeliever goes, and this is what the New Testament says, to Hades. <clears throat> All right. Is everybody with me? Oh, yeah, we got it. You see how important verse 14 is? The resurrection proves why the body is important to God. He is going to resurrect it. So it matters what we do with our body. Freedom in Christ does not mean we can do anything we want with our body. No, we do that which is wise, profitable, beneficial. We do that which is honoring to the Lord. Now in verse 15, I don't know if we're going to get through all this today. I, man, I thought we'd zip through this. Not, would you quit asking all these questions? No, I'm, I don't mean that. I want you to ask questions. But there is a second reason that Paul offers now for his contention that it matters what we do with our body. He's addressing an issue that was apparently prevalent in Corinth, uh, even among believers, apparently. It certainly was true with the unbelieving community in Corinth. Uh, they had, um, there were several temples in Corinth. I showed you that map the very first day we started that you have in your packet. Let's take the Temple of Aphrodite, which was the temple of uh, carnal love, of erotic love in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, You would offer sacrifices to her, and then there would be temple prostitutes. One ancient record says there were 2,000 temple prostitutes in Corinth. And so as um, a part of that worship and adoration of Aphrodite, you would then go into that temple prostitute, engage in sexual intercourse with her as a form of worship which is really, it's, it's almost bizarre. But that was a very, 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 very common thing in the ancient world. When Peggy and I were in London uh, in June visiting our son, we went to the British Museum, which I, I just absolutely love to go there. But there was a great exhibition on uh, Pompeii. Do you remember that city that was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius in AD 679? Well, anyway, one of the things that, because if you remember that story, the ash is what killed everybody. It wasn't the volcano, it was the ash. I mean, it just absolutely dumped mountains of ash instantly on the, because the whole, the whole side of Mount Vesuvius exploded. And if you ever go to Pompeii, you see Vesuvius, the whole side of the mountain's gone. It just exploded, a little bit like Mount, what was that, St. Helens, St. Helens. Out, out west? number of years ago. Well, anyway, I'm way beyond the point. The point is, because everything was preserved, it, it just, they found statues and, and, and uh, paintings, they're called frescoes on the wall, some of the most unbelievable immorality you can imagine. And that's how they decorated their homes. 
and statues of gods having sexual intercourse with humans. That's the culture of the Greco-Roman world. And so in a city like Corinth, where all the stuff that I've just summarized was present, it was a struggle for them. That's the way they used to live. And now that temptation, that tendency is still there. So Paul says in verse 15 to them, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I told you this last week. Whenever he uses that phrase, do you not know, that's a, that's a catchphrase. I taught you this. Mm-hmm. Do you not know? I taught you. That was, a, that was a formula he used. I've taught you this. That your bodies are members of Christ. Now what does that mean? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We'll get to that. When you put your faith in Christ, you become a part of the body of Christ. I taught you that, Paul says. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Now that doesn't take much imagination to understand what he's saying. I, who belong to Jesus Christ, part of his body, I now join that the body of a harlot. Paul is setting this up, obviously, in such a way where it's inconceivable that you would do that. How could you take that which belongs to Christ and join it to a harlot? That's why he answers, may it never be. That's the strongest way you can say no in the Greek language. May it It's just abhorrently no. And then he asks another rhetorical question, or do you not know, what does that mean? He had taught them this, that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her. Now the word join there in Greek, it's a very special Greek word. It's a word of covenantal union. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. To become one flesh. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one with him. So Paul is setting up the theology of sex. And that's what these verses are. A theology of sex is rooted in the principle that sexual relations are for the covenant union of marriage and no other situation is permissible. Because you are joining yourself a member of the body of Christ with a harlot. That is an inconceivable thing for you to do. Because the Bible says the two become one. The only place that applies is in the covenantal union of marriage. So you are violating the covenant union of marriage because you belong to the Lord. So Paul, in a very real sense, the way I wrote it there in the outline point, sexual union outside of marriage is incompatible with the believer's union with Christ. And he's using that covenant language of take away and join. They're they're covenant words as we translate them into English. And he's setting it up in such a way. And I mean, honestly, I, I say this intentionally. He is shaming them. If you do this, and remember, I'm not in any way justifying it, but remember, this is the world in which these people came out of. This is the world they were used to. And I'm telling you, I know you. I wish I could get all of you on a plane and take you to London and get to the British Museum for you to see visual realizations of this world that these people were living in. And I'm telling you, and I'm going to be real blunt and a bit polemical here, that's the world you and I live in today. No. It's not, it, 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 we should not in any way, well, we're better than the Greco-Roman world. No, we're not, we're worse. I mean, in, in many ways, we're worse. 
I mean, it was for me and Peggy. It was. It was. She. 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 She stopped. She didn't want to go through it anymore. I said, "Well, honey, I really it's an historian. I want to go through all this." And they had this demonstration. That they had this thing of what the kitchen. Oh my glory! Wow. That they had inside commode, but the commode was right next, right next to the little uh, uh, table where you prepared food. They had no idea of connection between germs. I mean, it was, oh. is any wonder? I mean, and you, you start thinking, I bought a, a book on the whole thing. But you think what the smell must have been like. But I mean, it was a world we've completely lost in that area because sanitation is such an important value of our culture, and rightly so. But we don't necessarily decorate our homes with some of the frescoes that you see in, in the Greco-Roman world. But it's on our TV sets, it's on our smartphones, it's... Yeah. You can access it, and that's one of the real struggles of this world. It's so visual. It's everywhere. And Paul is saying, now listen, you're part of the new order, and in the new order of things, it is inconceivable that you would take a part of the body of Christ and join it with the heart. And if you choose to do that, remember... As the Bible says, the two become one. To join with a woman or a woman to join with a man sexually is a covenantal union. And that is an inconceivable thing to do when you belong to Christ. That he's trying to shame them. Their theology should affect how they live. And that's what he's trying to get them to see. Yep. Well, quick question. Uh, for a, a Christian who's come to know the Lord and he was uh, sexually active before he came to know the Lord and he reads over this, how should he look at himself today as um, he can't in any way measure up now because he's had sex with a woman before he got married? How is that covered by the I mean, I would see some people maybe feeling guilty about this in fact. If this was a part of your past, it's forgiven. Oh, Psalm 32. Oh, the blessedness of the forgiveness of God, David writes. This section we're studying now is the challenge for the believer. Okay, that may have been part of your past. It cannot be a part of your present any longer. Here are the reasons why. And it, you know, that, um, that is so real today. I mean, I've had many men in my office over the years, you know, you know, mostly college guys, but they, they struggle with this kind of stuff. And they struggle with pornography. They struggle with fantasizing, of having sex with other women and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, that, that's true. But now you have to understand you're a new creature in Christ and you have got to start to see yourself differently. And you must now begin in the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you as he begins to change your will as well as your behavior. Trust him to get victory over that. But it, it's, this is nothing unforgivable about this. There's nothing that's going to keep you out of heaven about this. But it's Paul is saying, okay, here's who you are in Christ. You're righteous. Now become what you are. Which means your old practices and your old habits, you've got to start to get rid of those. Now, in in a Christian culture, there shouldn't be multiple brides, but <laughs> I don't see polygamy justified at all. Uh, I think one of the things that, um, and this this in effect is what has happened in, in the centuries. When you go into a culture, when the gospel penetrates a culture like that, what I think the ideal has to be that it's in the next generation where monogamy becomes the new standard. Uh, you, I mean, you can't go into a culture that, 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 that's, that I'll make this up because I read, I read this in a book not too many uh, years ago. You go into a culture where polygamy is practiced and the chief of the culture comes to Christ. Now you say, okay, chief, set the model. Which one do you want for your wife? The rest you got to get rid of. I mean, that's just not going to work very well. That is not... You. So your goal now is... Here's what, the, here's what the Bible teaches. Here's what God wishes for you. 
Now let's begin to set the goal. It's in the next generation. We're going to see God's ideal starting to be fulfilled. I don't know how other way to do that. Guys, I've got to quit. It's past 10 of. Lord, thank you for our time as we've uh, seen in another way how the gospel of Christ does truly penetrate and pierce the culture and begin to change everything. And certainly in this Greco-Roman world where Paul planted these churches, this was absolutely radical. But the, the, the truth of the gospel does begin to up, overturn the norms, begin to change people's behavior, and slowly but surely begins to change culture. Lord, we long for that in our country today where we have gotten far away from your values and your morals and your ethical standards. What was true in the ancient world of the, the first century church is un tragically and unfortunately becoming again characteristic of the 21st century. Not everywhere, but it's quite prolific. So, Lord, we need your grace, we need your mercy. Help us in our individual lives as men to take seriously what Paul is saying here. It matters how we live, and it matters what we do with our bodies. Uh, they are your, as we're going to study next week, they are your temple. Uh, they are the place in which your spirit resides. And it means that we see ourselves as of infinite worth and value to you, and it matters how we live. So help us to be men who represent you well. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. See you next week.